In the winter of 1452, Richard, Duke of York, appeared to have neither the resources nor the support to return to the centre of power. But, as I said last time, events in the summer of 1453 were to produce a seismic shift in the English political landscape. Few could have seen it coming, though a pessimist might have reckoned that sooner or later Henry's incapacity would overwhelm him. What took place in 1453, though, as so often during the reign, was not really Henry's fault. As with most seismic activity, the trouble was already brewing beneath the surface well before the ground began to shake. In order to grasp the significance of what took place in 1453, we have to turn first to the north of England, where a long-running feud entirely unconnected with the rivalry between York and Somerset was about to escalate into open war. As long as anyone in the north could remember, two of its leading noble families, the Percys and the Nevilles, had been at each other's throats. The Percy family had long been a power in the north as the Earls of Northumberland, but the Nevilles had only really begun to challenge them towards the end of the 14th century. Though they were by no means the only powerful families in the region, they could both draw on enormous resources. Their lands were spread across the north from east to west, and thus there were many instances when their estates sat side by side. They were always on the lookout for an opportunity to increase their holdings, preferably at the expense of their rivals. If you were a Percy tenant, then you were a Percy through and through, and you would have no doubt where your loyalties lay. Something which makes little sense to the modern mind, but was fundamental to life in the 15th century, is that such tenants would have seen their first loyalty as to their noble lord rather than the king. Why, you might wonder, did any king allow a handful of noblemen to wield such power and engender such loyalty within his kingdom? The answer is twofold but simple. In the first place, a king in London who had few men-at-arms of his own was in no position to challenge these mighty subjects. But also, as long as they recognised his authority, he had no need to do so, nor did he want to, because the security of his kingdom depended on the power and resources of these men. The Percys and the Nevilles, along with lesser northern lords, formed a bulwark against a Scottish invasion, which was always a very real possibility. The land south of the border, known as the Marches, was divided into two, east and west. Mostly, the Percy and Neville families shared the responsibility of defending the kingdom. So, for example, in 1453, Richard Neville, Earl of Salisbury, was warden of the West March, and Henry Percy, eldest son of the Earl of Northumberland, was warden of the East March. The holders of these titles were expected to defend the border rigorously. Since the wardens even had the authority to raise men at the Crown's expense, there was never a time when either family was short of armed men. Bearing in mind the fierce rivalry between the two factions, the scope for an argument to turn into a skirmish 
was always there. During the first 50 years of Lancastrian rule, the fortunes of the Percys and the Nevilles had, as one might expect, fluctuated. At first, the Percys, instrumental in putting Henry IV on Richard II's throne, were in the ascendant, but their ill-fated rebellion against Henry later on led to disastrous royal confiscations of land. The Percys were weakened, but by contrast the Neville family was on the up. Two of the most advantageous marriages of the period increased the lands of Richard Neville, Earl of Salisbury, and his son, confusingly also called Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick. The latter is the one who is known to history as the Kingmaker, with remarkably little justification in my view, but much more about that later on. The two Richard Nevilles then, father and son, each amassed enormous land and wealth at a time when the Percys were still licking their wounds and attempting to repair the damage caused by the previous generation's rebellion. The Percys might not be such dominant players on the national stage at that point, but in the north they were still a force to be reckoned with. Anyway, interesting though all this is, you may well ask, what has it got to do with the Wars of the Roses? Well, you may recall me mentioning in an earlier session that Henry VI was not great at managing his nobles at the best of times. And we have already seen how close to open conflict York and Somerset came in London itself. But the North, well, for Henry, that was a closed book. And the Percy Neville rivalry was allowed to fester on unchecked. Though one side or the other might petition the Crown to redress a grievance, they soon came to realise that this was something they would have to settle themselves. In August 1453, an opportunity presented itself for the Percys to knock the Nevilles off their perch, an event which might well have been the inspiration for the so-called Red Wedding in George Martin's A Game of Thrones. Now, don't get too excited, because you'll only be disappointed. There was a wedding, the wedding of one of the Earl of Salisbury's sons, Thomas Neville, which took place in the middle of August, 1453, at Tattershall Castle in Lincolnshire. The wedding itself went ahead without any problem, but the journey of the Nevilles back to Sheriff Hutton in Yorkshire was rather more eventful. But what objection did the Percys have to this particular wedding? Well, the bride, Maud Stanhope, was an heiress to several pieces of land which had once belonged to the Percys, before being confiscated by Henry IV. The Percys wanted all their lost lands back, and they most certainly did not want any of them ending up in Neville hands. Maud's marriage to Thomas Neville would mean exactly that. But what were they prepared to do about it? The second son of Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland, was Thomas, Lord Egremont and he was not a young man to shirk conflict. Indeed, one could argue that mostly he went looking for it. It was he who planned to ambush the Nevilles as they returned to Yorkshire after the wedding. 
This was not a spur-of-the-moment incident, since Percy retinues were summoned from as far away as Cumberland. Nor was it a minor affair. The Percys brought at least 700 and possibly as many as a thousand of their tenants. Though the Nevilles would also have had a considerable retinue, it seems very likely that they would have been outnumbered when the attack began at Heworth Moor, just outside York. The Nevilles managed to escape and reach their stronghold at Sheriff Hutton without injury to any of the family members, but a number of others were killed or wounded. So, not exactly a red wedding, but certainly one tinged with red. To Richard Neville, Earl of Salisbury, the head of the family, this was a declaration of war. The Percys had attempted to eliminate their rivals, and, more importantly, it was clear to him that the Nevilles could expect no support from the King's government. This struck a devastating blow at the unity of the nobility under Henry VI's kingship. The division in the north was plain for all to see, but the king was unable to deal with it. Why then did the Duke of Somerset, the king's leading minister, not act in support of the Nevilles? Well, only a month or so earlier in 1453, Somerset had a major falling out with Richard Neville Jr., the Earl of Warwick. As with most baronial feuds, this was caused by a dispute over land, this time in South Wales. The Beaufort family, despite their close relationship to the king, had very limited land holdings, and thus Somerset was always keen to extend his lands, and thus his income, whenever he could. Unfortunately, on this occasion, he acquired some lands in Glamorgan, which had previously belonged to the Earl of Warwick. And Warwick was not of a forgiving nature where matters of land ownership were concerned. By offending the richest earl in the kingdom, Somerset was making a powerful enemy. It helps to explain, though, why he was unwilling to help the Nevilles in their dispute with the Percys. None of these feuds between nobles caused the Wars of the Roses in themselves, but they had several important effects. Firstly, they promoted division rather than harmony amongst the ruling classes. It's important to grasp that this was not an argument between a few individuals. This was discord between rival households, knights, tenants and any other beneficiaries of the patronage of these great men. It stretched, therefore, from the top to the bottom of society. A more specific and damaging effect was that the Nevilles, having found no support from the Crown or Somerset, would have to look elsewhere for help. Ordinarily, the King might have seen the seriousness of the situation and eventually intervened. Perhaps it would have been possible to re-establish the previous, albeit precarious, balance in the north between Percy and Neville. Ordinarily. But sadly, 1453 was no ordinary year. Whilst mayhem was building in the north, a thunderbolt of misery struck the good ship Henry. In late July, 
news reached England of a calamitous defeat in France. The hero John Talbot, Earl of Shrewsbury, starved of resources and reinforcements, was defeated and killed at the Battle of Castillon in France. At a moment, therefore, when England faced complete annihilation in France, the trouble in the north seemed pretty unimportant. Then, in August, King Henry himself had some sort of mental breakdown, which left him incapable of speech or movement. He could not communicate his thoughts, if he had any, nor could anyone communicate with him. It was as if the king was absent, and it was catastrophic for his kingdom. Whatever faults Henry possessed as king, at least he did act from time to time, and he was there to preside over government. Remembering what I said right at the start of all this, that the English king was at the centre of government, it follows that without a king, no government had the authority to rule. So, whilst Queen Margaret and the Duke of Somerset were already the key drivers of royal policy, they could not rule without a king. While the king's councillors waited into October for the king's condition to improve, the queen gave birth to the long-awaited son and heir on the 13th of October. Now the king's council had to make a decision about what was to be done if the king could no longer rule.